You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I hope wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, you are doing very well. The guest on this episode of the show is a bloke called Christopher Johnson, and he is the brains behind Sweden's best ever musical export, Therion. At the time of the discussion, it was on the eve of the release of the epic, the symphonic masterpiece, beloved Antichrist. Do check it out if you like your symphonic metal on the more symphonic side. Let's cut to the chat with Christopher. Let's hear what he has to say. Here we go. Wonderful. I've been looking forward to this chat probably, let me see, how long have I been a Therion fan? This is one of the few moments where I'm actually talking to the artist as both a indie journalist and a fan. So you're going to have to forgive me through part of it because um, I've been listening to your music since I stumbled and that's what it was do- like doing back in the day when there was no internet, stumbled over Theli, which I'm sure a lot of people got into your beautiful music through. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, well, Billy was a very important album for us too because um, we made four albums prior to that, and we were just some, we had an underground following, and we got great reviews in music media, but we never sold any records, and just made one one terrible tour after the other trying to establish the band, and we were even happy when we got the terrible tours because we were promised a lot of tours but we never got. So Billy was kind of the album that just changed everything. So even though I, I personally don't think it's it's one one of our best albums, uh, it's it's the album that made everything that was impossible possible. So Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. The most important album to me in that regard. The press release that I received states that your new album, the Beloved Antichrist, should not be considered a regular album, but to be seen as a performance that will also be available as an audio recording. It also says that Therion aimed for a revolutionary stage performance bringing together old and young opera connoisseurs. Now, that's pretty broad. So I also appreciate that no one could accuse you ever of having been a straightforward metal songsmith. But what I just mentioned is that um, no other no other metal band has actually attempted prior. I'm talking about the opera thing. There is a, plur- a plethora of artists that merge symphony and metal but not a full-scale opera, as I'm to understand that you are intending on delivering. So, mate, tell us all about Beloved Antichrist and the concept. Well, our idea is basically to make a Therian version of Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, I think the, the correct terminology would be a, a rock metal musical with opera vocals. Um, and... The reason we got here is because I tried to make a regular opera. I think it was 2003 when I um, started writing on it. And um, it turned out I failed. Um, I can write the highlights of an opera or a classical piece, but I have a problem to write the more dull music that you need to to bridge those highlights with each other, to to tie them together. so I was writing for a couple of years and then I just stopped writing. And in 2012, I realized that I'm not getting anywhere with this. So it's no point trying to, to continue with it. So I should ask myself why I really wanted to do this in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it and I thought, well, I have nothing to prove you know, so maybe it was just an idea I had and uh, apparently a bad idea because I didn't finish it off. <laughs> and I had already stolen a little bit from myself uh, into Therion from the opera, Blood of Kingu from the Cyrus B album. Uh, the beginning okay. of the song and the end of the song is taken from the opera. 
uh, and the, the end was rearranged into to Syrian music and with metal as well. So I thought, why not do like that with with all of this music that I've written from the opera um, to um, transform it into Syrian? Uh, and while elaborating on that idea, I thought, why not take the whole concept? You know, why not make a Syrian opera with a stage performance and you know make it theatric? Um, so that's how the idea was born. Um, the difference, mm. though, is that when, when when I had the idea of writing a classical opera, I was thinking about um, making what is it called in English? Uh, uh, Recitative? Oh, recital. You know, uh, it's like when you yeah, that when you speak and sing at the same time. Oh, like it's a mixture between speaking and singing. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, and that's yep. something you, you you use to make the story move on faster. Uh, because if you're going to tell a story with singing melodies, it's going to take forever to tell a story. Sure. Yep. So my original idea of making a classical opera was that it would be rather short, maybe around an hour, you know, an hour, 15 minutes, something maybe, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but now when we did it the Therian style, I was shocked to see how this was growing. Um, we actually wrote four hours of music. So I was completely in shock. We, we can't make this four hours. Nobody's going to listen to this. Uh, people are going to die trying to watch this. Um, if anybody would be crazy enough to, to help us stage it. So I cut it down to three and a half hour. And um, after the recordings, I listened through the stuff and I thought even three and a half hours too long. We need to streamline this. So I, I cut away a lot of the scenes. So we have a lot of unreleased material um, down to three hours and four minutes or something like that that we have now. Um, so yeah, it, it grew quite a lot. And we also changed the story a lot. Originally, the idea was to base it on, on the book, A Short Tale of Antichrist by yes. uh, all of you. Mm-hmm. But the story turned out to be not so good for staging uh, or to make it into music as well. The first thing I noticed was that it doesn't have any female characters. I I didn't think about it when I read the the story. I was like, that's a good story. But once I started to write music, I realized there are only men in the story. That's very boring with no female voices and also for the dynamics. Especially for your your music too, which has got a lot of female vocal through it. Yeah, I even prefer female voices. So, um, yeah, we had to in, in, uh, invent a lot of female characters and um, also redo some existing characters into females to get more balance there. And then also I realized that the, the beginning is not very good for theater at all. It would probably be exciting in a movie, but not really it would be very hard to, to realize it on stage in a good way. Um, so we rewrote the beginning and then I also never really liked the end. Even when I read the book, it, it's too abrupt. And in an opera, you want an epic, huge end, big tragedy and very epic. So I completely rewrote the end. And once you, you take out the, the knife and start cutting into the story, there's no stopping, you know? So, yes. Basically, we've been changing the entire story. There are 
three, four scenes that are pretty much taken straight out of the book. And uh, you have some of the, the main characters that are pretty much taken straight out of the book. But as a story in itself, we've changed it a lot. Okay. Now, about the story. So, Beloved Antichrist, I, look, I've read the blurb, but just for the listener's benefit, and you've hinted at it, or you haven't hinted at it, you've, you've mentioned it numerous times through your response to my initial question there. Can you describe in a, in a you know, or can you describe the story behind Beloved Antichrist? What is the story? Well, in our story, in our story, it's um, it's a man who speaks directly to God. He's very religious, um, and he thinks of himself as a second Messiah. Um, he believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but he was more like a preparatory messiah you know he had to sacrifice himself and you know uh well he himself which is the second and the real messiah is gonna be god's representative on earth and remain on earth um but then god stops talking to him and he becomes very depressed and he decides to commit suicide so he throws himself out from a cliff and in the middle of the fall, there's a mystic force catching him and putting him down gently and starting to speak to him. And that force is the devil. And uh, the devil asks him why he has been uh, turning to, to, to God when he should have been turning to him, because he's his real father, he says. Um, and he offered him to accept the unholy spirit instead and uh, become the Antichrist, basically. And... Um, that he would love him the way he is and he won't ask anything of him in return and just make him rule the world. And uh, this man then decides to accept the offer and he becomes the Antichrist. And I really like that part of it, that he's not born into Antichrist. He actually has a free will, the choice that he becomes Antichrist. Um, and that also makes him more human. You know, he's not like some sort of supernatural born into human body. He is a human who accepts something and transforms into something. So he keeps his human size. And uh, after that, he, he go home and he writes a very spectacular book, a remarkable book, which deals with both um, politics, philosophy, and religion. And it seems to have the answers to everything. And uh, it becomes the most prominent uh, book release in, in the history of literature and um, inevitably, he's, he's becoming elected world president and later even proclaimed as Caesar. That uh, he's like the emperor of the yeah, world. And he's Caesar. both a religious and um, yeah, both a, a political and a religious le leader in one. Um, and he makes remarkable things to, to humanity. He solves all the problems. There are no class differences. There are no starvation. There are, don't seem to be much disease, uh, no pollution. There are no wars. There are world peace. So in the history of civilization, mankind never had it better than under Antichrist. But then at some point, um, he gets revealed as being Antichrist. And humanity is getting divided. You have half of humanity who think he's a son of the devil. He must die. He must go down. There's no doubt about that. We cannot be ruled by the son of the devil. Uh, while the other part say, well, 
we don't really care about who the hand belongs to that bring us the gift. You know, it's, we never had a better life than now. And we value the mundane life more than the spiritual things. So maybe some people just don't believe in the spiritual things. Maybe other people just think, I'd rather see my children eat and have my uh, family in peace than the way the world used to be. Sure. Um, and also you need to keep in mind that uh, our story uh, takes place in the future after a very turbulent time uh, with a lot of death and despair. Um, so that, that puts an extra dimension to it that people really want mm -hmm. safety. Yeah, it's good to so know. Yep. Humanity, is humanity is divided. And uh, after this wonderful world peace, then there's a last big world war where pretty much everybody died. So they just destroy everything they have. Maybe it's a bit of a spoiler to say that, but I already said that in so many interviews. It doesn't make a difference now. Okay, yeah. Um, it's vast, mate. Very but, big um, concept right there. Probably the biggest concept that are probably the most uh, all-encapsulating concept that I've heard for a metal release, actually. So I've got to hand it to you there. And there's, uh, there's no moral in the story at all. This should be entertainment. This shouldn't be that you write people on the nose what to think. Um, That's. I'm glad you took that path, mate. It, yeah. I'm glad you weren't. It's not. But a, it does raise. Sorry, you go, mate. Yeah, it's, it's worth to mention that because uh, the author was kind of political in his own time. Which mm. I mean, geopolitics of the 1800s are kind of irrelevant for us now, um, especially for Australia, I guess, because back then you were regarded as some funky island somewhere where the British dumped <laughs> their criminals. I think, um, I think some people think, think we the, still are. <laughs> So I have a list of contributing singers. So for those listening, there are 30 unique characters voiced by almost two dozen individual vocalists. God knows how many musicians you recruited, production staff and engineers also played a role as well, mate. So Chris, how did you go about the process of explaining to all involved what you wanted from them? And also what were the challenges, the technical challenges? Well, we just start in one end and finish it. You know, you just take one thing at a time. Uh, that's why we recorded for over a year. Um, technically, it's more the endurance. Like if you make um, an album with 10 songs, you're very, very tired of listening to drums after recording the drum tracks for 10 songs. So we, we recorded over 50 uh, scenes. So it's like more than 50 songs. Uh, most of them have drums. So to keep yourself sharp for all this time and, you know, not lose your head in the massive time and in musical information that you have, you know, listening to drum tracks for almost 50, um, 50 scenes, that's a great challenge. Yeah. And same thing then with the bass and guitar and like, if it wasn't bad enough to record guitars for, for this length, I had the, best and the most stupid idea I ever had in my life at the same time. I thought, let's do this massive overdub thing with the guitars, like they used to do in the 80s, some productions, which means you, you will pull down the distortion of the guitar to, to very, very little. And then you overdub it at least 16 times. Then it will sound like a, a regular normal guitar with 16 overdubs. The distortions are normal, but it will be much clearer. So you can find a space in the sound production easier and um, 
it doesn't take as much space in the production. So if you have a lot of things going on, it makes things more clear and easy. And we decided to mix three different amplifiers. So when we divided it, it became 18 overdubs. So every distorted rhythm guitar you hear has actually been recorded 18 times. Uh, like that wasn't enough to get those 18 takes that sounds good enough. We had to do maybe 50, 60 takes. Jeez, okay. So we actually <laughs> surprise we me. recorded three and a half hour, three and a half hour of recording uh, guitars for 18 times. No, uh, uh, 50, 60 times to get those 18 overdubs. So that was very, very tiring, and that was the biggest challenge. And and for me, as main responsible, like okay, then we're done with the guitars. Then the, the bass player had to help out with some guitars too because we're just too much. Then they piss off, and then I have to start with the next thing. So after drums, bass, guitars, everybody else like, okay, good, now now we're done. Then I have to continue with the vocals. And, you know, the patience, like we had 15 vocalists doing these 29 different roles. 15, there you go, yep. To, to, yeah, because some of them were doing multiple roles when they were small roles. Mm-hmm. Um, to then have 15 people come to the studio, set everything up from scratch with a microphone, getting the signal straight for the singer, um, getting the singer um, into a good recording mode. You know, it takes half an hour, you know, to get into it and start producing good takes. You know, one after the other, again and again, that's very tiring. And then when it all was done, I spent 10 full working days, which for me is at least 12 hours a day, um, cutting together vocals because, you know, you, you make one take, and it's good, but that's not, not enough. So you, you take a couple of takes that are all good, and then you listen through and you see like, okay, the beginning was fantastic in this take, and but I like the ending better of the other take, and that phrasing of that word in the middle of the sentence was perfect in that take. So you cut it together to one ultimate take. And that's an insane amount of work with, with this massive information. So 10 days only cutting vocals. You're... Mm so exhausted in the head that's the biggest challenge to to not say fuck it i had enough i don't want to do yeah i can imagine yeah. and then of course then the the mix of everything um so my my feeling when i was done with this was not like yeah i'm so excited it was more like finally it's over i'm just feeling <laughs> relief yeah so, time to have uh, a beer <laughs> survive it. Um, so, so that was the big challenge with recording um the big challenge with writing music was that you have different scenes with something going on on stage. This is a, a rock metal musical with operatic vocals that's going to be performed on stage, like a Perian Jesus Christ superstar. Um, so the music needs to reflect what, what, what's going on in that scene, which could be very different type of emotions. Um, you have love scenes, you know, that require gentle music but at the same time it's very positive it has to be in major we tend to write most of our music in minor so you know that's a bit of a challenge and then you have scenes like the palace ball which is the best example in this regard um which is a dancing scene in a uh in a ballroom you know that requires very different type of music compared to how fairy normally sound like um so you need to write music in a very specific way. And when you have this huge amount of music, now in the final version, it's three and a half, no, uh, three hours and four minutes. Mm. 
but what we recorded was was three and a half hour. Uh, so we have a lot of un- unreleased material. So when we recorded that, I, I realized we need to vary the keys. You cannot play three and a half hour in an E and A minor like mm. most metal bands do. They yeah. have regular tuning or maybe some D. So we had to really vary the keys and also to study what keys have what emotions. Like the A minor is a typical sad scale. Um, so to find the, the right keys for the right um, theme. And also vary the tempos and even time signatures. Hmm. Like if you write in classical music, three, four time signature is, is very common. But in rock music, it's very uncommon because yes. in most cases, it will sound like circus music. Like three, four, it's like boom, pop, pop, boom, pop, pop, one, two, three, one, two, three. So it, it's like waltz. Hmm. Uh, but we managed to get three, four time signature into four scenes without sounding funny. Um, so we put a, a great deal into this variation that is required to, to make such a long piece um, and durable for an audience. Of course, it, it's quite a piece anyway uh, to swallow if you're gonna listen to the audio version on CD. Um, but when you, you watch what's going on, on on the stage, I think we found uh, the golden balance between length and, and what's going to work. It's like the, the Lord of the Rings, you know, it's a fantastic story, but yeah. it's also a very long movie, but yeah. it, it kind of works because it's such a good story. I, I don't think our story is as good as the Lord of the Rings, but at least it's an example I can make. Mm, it'll certainly appeal to metal fans though, and people into their rock music, I think, more so than Lord of the Rings, yeah. I mean, I read the books as a kid, but I can't say I got into the movies that much, but it's very hard to realise on a cinematic scale um, what the books would relay to your imagination in that case there with the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit series. Isn't it really yours? You, you're actually starting, I'm not saying from scratch because I understand it's, it's received a significant influence from another source here, but you can almost dictate what the Im- imagination receives. Yeah, well, we, we based it on a, a book from Solovia from scratch, um, but we realised quite soon that I mean, if it's hard to make a book into a movie, you can realize that it's even more hard to make it into a theater yeah. because you can't make a lot of animations or, or trick filming. You know, things have to be performed by real people on stage with real objects. Um, and I realized that uh, the beginning of the book would probably be awesome if it was made into a movie, but it wouldn't fit at all on a theater stage. And... Also, I didn't like the end of the book. It was too abrupt. And now when we make it into a, a grandiose opera, it needs to be a very epic ending, very dramatic. So we had to rewrite the end. And uh, one of the main problems with the book also, which I didn't think about when I wrote the book, because it's a story and he wrote the story how he wanted it. But when I wanted to turn it into music, I realized that there are no female characters in, at all in the book. And that would be very weird musically not to have any female voices mm-hmm. and for the sake of the story it completely loses dynamics and for an opera it would be straight out ridiculous so we had to invent a lot of female characters so we gave antichrist a wife and we made uh, an an opponent for him um that is influenced by a character in the book who was male but we made a, a female kind of religious warrior woman character like Joan of Arc type mm-hmm. of 
Uh, yeah, a protagonist. Character. Yeah, a very and, strong uh, protagonist, female character. Yeah. yeah. And to make it more opera, we made her sister the wife of the Antichrist. So it's family drama as well. That things won't <laughs> be that easy. That everybody's just, having mixed just like real mixed life. loyalty. <laughs> yeah, it is. So um, yeah, we, we we rewrote the story so much that I would say it's loosely based on on the book it's inspired by the book but you have three four scenes that are taken straight out of the book Hmm. and uh some of the main characters are pretty much how they are in the book so the story would never have existed without solovia but Hmm. if somebody reads the book and go and see the the musical they're gonna find it to be brutally different look this project for all intents and purposes, sounds like a labour of love, but so indeed is your entire career. So I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion that I'm I'm a long-time fan, but I'm a long-time fan because I'm actually inspired by you, Chris. So I do ask this next question in good faith. You know, we're all so aware of the many ills these days that plague society and the human race because of the internet. We've got access to every bit of information we can possibly get our hands on. You know, music is such an important piece of allowing us to make sense of so much of the calamity out there. So... Why do you do what you do, mate? I mean, you're talented enough just to bash out, you know, Metallica-style music, if you know what I'm saying, with all due respect to Metallica. But instead, you you produce these vast, epic, um, brilliantly composed pieces of metallically enshrined opera music. I don't know. I just do the music I like. I mean, we, we never made it for the first four albums. and We just did what we believed in. Then all of a sudden, we had success. And of course, the record company was, oh, try to copy Tilly again. And then we went in a different direction and we made Bobbin and we doubled the sales. So I, I kind of felt I was rewarded for going my own way and just doing the album I would like to buy instead of trying to put my finger up in the air and see where the wind blows and try to fit in. Mm. Um, so after then, we had our ups and downs. I mean, Secret of the Runes was a big flop at the time. You know, we halved our sales and everybody was disappointed and so on. Uh, but with time, this record has been recognized as one of our best works. So we, we even performed the entire Secret of the Runes album on one tour uh, on the request of the fans. Mm, okay. So, you know, some some albums like Citrara was a bit of a flop now also. But I, I think, you know, it's good to do what you believe in. And Judas Priest was always inspiring me in that regard. I mean, they always did different directions and some of the records were not so good. Some of them were awesome, but you know, they just did what they wanted. And I kind of respected that. And I think that that's what you should do. If you're not willing to risk your career with every album, then you don't deserve a career in my opinion. Um, and I'm having the same fun making music now, 30 years later, as I had when I was writing the first few songs that ended up on our first demo tape in the 80s. It never became a job. It never became, of course, it's a job in the sense that I'm making my living out of it, but yeah. uh, it, it never felt like a no, job. I know what you're saying, yeah. And every time we do something new, I, I really have the same feeling like when we made the first demos, you know, like little kids, like, yes, this is going to be so cool. And that's the most important thing to have fun. That's why we're we're doing we're music. Having fun, yeah. And I'm I'm sure if if our sales would go down to an extent that I had a problem to feed my family, that maybe I would have to do things that <laughs> I, I I wouldn't like to do. Well, I I rather 
sell my ass in music than than to do a, sell my ass doing a regular job. Yeah, working um, hardware. So I don't think I could ever. I don't think I could ever see you working in a hardware like, store. Not that you couldn't do that, but yeah, you're always a bloke that was going to compose music. I think. Actually, I'm the CEO of a company in the car business too, as a hobby. So I, I would have something to fall back cars. on in that regard. I love, but, yeah, I love my. What sort of cars do you get into? What's is this motorsport or are you talking about classic vehicles? I uh, offshore Russian offshore uh, vehicles. Uh, it started with I wanted to buy one myself. Uh, and nobody could sell one to me because they're they're all breaking because our gravel road, like like I said, we have four kilometers of, of gravel road to our house in the middle of the forest. Mm-hmm. And I had a Toyota Land Cruiser before and it was just falling to pieces. It's a great car if you drive on regular roads, but you know, when, when you have the autumn rain and when you have the uh the frost in the ground, mm. uh, it's not designed for those conditions. Getting released yeah. in, in, in the spring. No, you, you get huge holes, you know. So you need um solid wheel axles not to ruin your car and i looked around what cars does have solid wheel axles these days it's only jeep wrangler it's the only one <coughs> and it's not a very comfortable car it's yeah. just an off-road car for expeditions or a second car for hunters <coughs> so i wanted a, a comfortable modern car with solid wheel axles and there was only a wasp a german uh, a russian one um and uh, in the process of, of trying to buy one, I was persuaded by the general agent um, of, um, of Europe to start importing them to Sweden. And I realized there were friends and others that wanted them. Yep. So I started the general agent. So we're selling to retailers. So I'm just the importer. Uh, so I could easily fall back on that, actually. But You're, you're, you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. That's what but you main, are. Yeah, but I can do only, I can only do things I believe in. I, I could, could mm. only sell something that I want myself. I would be an absolutely terrible entrepreneur trying to sell something just for money that I don't believe in. I can sell my own music and I can sell these cars because I drive them every day and I love them. Mm. But I, I could never import American cars or something like that. It would be like, well, it's just a it's car. Like a thing. What's, the, what's the Russian brand of vehicle called that you import? Uaz, it's U A Z. Okay, U A Z. All right, I'm gonna. I, I love cars, so I haven't heard of it. Uh, I don't think you know we'd have a reason to hear it down here in Australia. But um, yeah, I'm gonna look into it, mate. You give me something there. All right. You know what? We've been speaking about Australia about that because they're coming with a, a steering wheel on the right side version later. Uh, so we've been speaking about bringing them to, to Britain because they're not represented there in Ireland and Malta. Uh, which is for a British colony as well. And then, of course, for Australia, these cars would be awesome because you have so many parts of the country with poor infrastructure. And this car can go down to 40 minus uh, Celsius. So it's good for Arctic, but it's also very good for desert climate. They use say, these cars in Syria. The problem in, in Australia uh, is against, uh, the uh, heat, ISIS. as you know. Yeah, the heat affects cars in Australia. We used to remember the Korean cars like Hyundai and Kia. God help me here in case anybody from those companies are listening, but they used to break down all the time, right? And the reason being because our asphalt, it gets very, very hot here, like 55, 60, 70 degrees sometimes, like really, really hot, and it just burns the underside of the, the vehicle and they break down because of that. Um, so how do, how do you think UAVs would go in those sort of conditions? Oh, it will be splendid. They have them in Syria in the desert now oh, fighting hot. the terrorists. So. Oh. Uh, with uh, machine guns on them. And also I sold them to, to a mining company who need 
cars that can endure. Normally, they have a car two, three years, then they're, they're rubbish after that. So with our cars, they hope they can last for a few few years longer. You have a lot of mining industry in, in uh, Australia as well. So, oh, mining, big, uh, yeah. So yeah. May, maybe I'll get to Australia uh, uh, representing the company before I get there with the band. <laughs> I've been speaking in, in interviews since the 90s with Australian music media yeah. about, you know, I hope we can make it to Australia one day. And yeah. now it's 20 more than 20 years later and I'm still talking about it. So. Well, we'll get to that. That was going to be one of my questions, but I'll tell you something. A few minutes ago, you mentioned an album that had a tremendous impact on me, and that's Vovin. Now, I do realize that the fan favorite is likely Thelly, which is a brilliant album. It's a groundbreaking release, but I do feel as though Vovin improves somewhat, but it also contains a pair of cuts that are a crowning achievement in your brilliant career. Now, those two cuts are the first two songs on the album, The Rise of Sodom and Gomorrah and The Birth of Venus Illegitima. Now, here's a quick story. When I was not, I was 19 when I first heard them, and I was over at a mate's place who most of my mates don't listen to metal or even rock music. I remember putting that album on a CD player around them, and everybody stopped in their tracks and said, what on earth is that? That's We've never heard anything like that. It's just brilliant. It I heard got feedback that it put their hairs on their end, and I put that down to the majesty of the tracks themselves. So what are your feelings, mate, about those tracks and Vovin as a release now that it, if you can believe, mate, it's 20 years of age this year? Well, Vovin was the album that really established us. And after that, I never had a problem with recording budgets or anything. We could start touring headline and everything. So that, that was the album that really made all the difficult things easy for me. Um, but it's also our most accessible album. You know, it had a... A more polished sound production and, and the songs were more accessible and, and at that point um, at that point um, I started to hearing fans telling me like hey my mom loves your music too you know? and I think that's really cool that mm. uh, normally the parents would not like the music of their children it was like oh what's that noise you're listening to you know it's the same thing when I grew up um, and then there's one band maybe they can build a bridge i remember my my father thought that all the heavy metal i listened to was just noise and then he's like well you know that band twisted sister they, they had a few good songs they were actually good songs <laughs> no. yeah <laughs> so he, he liked we're not gonna take it and i want to rock you know so they were really good rock songs because they, they yeah, broke through band. to an old yeah. grumpy man from the north of sweden um and uh, it seems like the, the Vovin album was, was doing that a lot. I mean, some people even said, hey, my, even my grandma likes it. Uh, and I think that's really cool. If we can make music that an older generation that normally despise the music of the young people can pick up and say, hey, this is really cool, then, then you made something really worthwhile. Hmm. So um, I'm, I'm really proud of that. A lot of fans were kind of embarrassed when they said that, you know, but or maybe they thought that, it's my mom who's particularly cool or something like that. But I must have heard it hundreds of times. Yeah, look, I can appreciate that. And look, there's another name associated with the album, and that's Martina Astner. Now, I can't find a record of her doing much of anything after Vovin, but I found her contribution was, was pitch perfect on the album. She was perfect for what you were trying to achieve. What's your take on her contribution to the album? And um, were they a special ingredient without which the album might not have worked? Um, I think somebody else could have done it, but she had the right voice for those songs. And um, that's why we picked her up. 
Um, she was in a band called Dreams of Sanity before. Uh, so you can pick up their debut album if you want to hear more of mm, her. Okay, yeah. it's a really good album. Um, and uh, yeah, I just thought her voice would be would be perfect for those songs, and yeah, it, it fitted really good. Um, she was all right to work with in the studio, but she was a bit difficult to work with live. Um, okay, drinking a little bit too much, smoking weed and stuff, and oh, yeah. uh, you know. Um, mm. People can do whatever they want, you know, with the bodies. But if you're a singer, you need to be able to deliver. And if you complain that it's a long tour, I can't reach the high notes. Well, you're not really morally, it's not really morally okay to complain about those things. If you drink a lot and you smoke a lot, cigarettes and weed, your voice is your instrument. You're being paid to, to, to perform. Um, they were paid by me. I was their employer, and the fans contributing to to her salary uh, with the, buying the tickets. So I, I think it's very respectless yeah. to do that. And I'm sure there's a lot of guys doing that, get, getting away with it. But I guess if you're a guy, you can just sing a bit more brutal or whatever. Yeah, it's rock and roll, it's live. But when you have a a beautiful female voice, you, there's no hiding. You know, if you don't take care of your voice, it would just sound bad. So at the end of the tour, it just didn't sound good. And that's the main reason I didn't want to continue to work with her because I thought she she had a cocky youngster attitude oh, uh, yeah. that didn't fit in with a serious band, um, which was a shame. I mean, I'm sure we could have made more good things together, but that's oh, how it was. She sounds um, like... She made another album uh, with a... What's it called? Uh, uh, yeah, Alice. Uh, Eric Rutten from Morbid Angel. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, uh, alas, yeah, spot on. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I haven't tracked that one down, though. But, I don't uh, think it's all, easy to find. In all honesty, it's not good. It's not a good album. The the songs are not good, and her vocal performance isn't good. Um, I don't know what what happened later. You know, I, I was actually very curious, like, oh, cool. You know, they're going to do this together. But I was really disappointed. It's And that's why it never made any big thing. You know, she had a, a big name at the time and, you know, the guy from Orbit Angel and the Therian girl doing it together, but it just fell flat because if the songs aren't there and performance isn't good, you know, you can't sell things just mm. on branding. Well, Eric Rutan, I've never met him or spoke to him, but I have spoken to a, a few people that have had albums produced by him and I know he doesn't suffer fools easily. So if I could go so far as to suggest he might have had a similar experience to your good self, mate, and decided that enough was enough and just left it be. I mean, he's, been, he's a very productive guy. He's like you, actually. He's a very productive guy. He's always on the move. There's always something happening. Yeah, but maybe it's better doing death metal, you know. It's, mm. Maybe it wasn't his thing. I mean, I, I really respect him, you know, but the, this time he wasn't good. You know, this shouldn't have been released this way. Maybe, maybe the folly of and, youth as well, mate. She might not have realized the opportunity that she had with you, the platform that you offered her. That's quite common, you know. And also mm. when, when people get out from nowhere into a famous band um, and they never had to fight themselves up, they tend to be a bit big-headed. Like when the lineup broke up after Gothic Cabalot, for instance. Um, then everybody, basically the whole band pissed off and everybody was really certain, like, yeah, we're going to do our own thing. And then he just disappeared. The, the bass player is an Evergrey, so he still have a career. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other guys, they just disappeared. Like the drummer who was the cockiest of all of them, he 
he hasn't hasn't done anything ever since. I think he did a few live shows with with Snowy Shaw as a hired gun, but that was it. Mm. And uh, with Christian Neiman, he did Sorcerer. You know, they're a decent band, but really small level, like doing three festivals a year and playing some club show with 200 people in Sweden. Uh, and that's a great shame because they had really good capacity. They were all good songwriters, excellent world-class musicians. But you need to understand how music business work, you know, and, and how to put things in a context. You know, well, that's what the producer often do with a band. Like sometimes the band writes brilliant stuff, but it needs somebody to put in it in its right place to make sense. Yeah, the George, the, the George producer, Martin thing. Have like, <laughs> yeah, well, otherwise, let's say a lot of bands in the 70s smoking weed, writing some really good riffs, but maybe they needed the producer to say, dude, you cannot jam your solo for five minutes here. It's not a live performance with a stoned audience. This is a record. Nobody's going to listen yeah. to your five-minute solo. Totally, yeah. You make it 30 seconds, you know. Or like saying, okay, this, this song is six minutes long. You're repeating too much. You need to cut it down, you know. Get to the, the core of the song. Take these tough decisions. And, and then you also have the, the thing of actually doing something. I, I remember a guy who played with us on the Vovin tour. Uh, he was just a hired gun. Uh, for the tour, um, but he was a brilliant guitar player and a good songwriter and everything, but a bit bit too much of a party head for me to have a, as a permanent guy. Um, and he played me this demo that he made with his band called Sin, and they were making this gothic metal right at the right time with Moonspell and Tiamat and all that, and it was really a hit song. It could have really made it, but it was too hard for him to get this thumb out of his fat ass <laughs> to to make a proper demo and send it to a record label and make things happen. Yeah. You know, people just smoke weed and drink beer and, and wait for somebody to come and knock on their door and say, yes. hey, do you live here? Cool, I'm going to make you a rock star. <laughs> and that's why many bands need managers because, yeah. you know, they can write music and play, but that's all they can do. You, you need somebody in a band who is driven, who can, you know, grab hold of things and do things. And in theory, it was always me who getting all the problems in my lap. Like in the beginning of the band, we, we tried to divide the task. Like, okay, um, the bass player, for instance, he, he was American, so he's a native English speaker, so he do the interviews. Yeah, it felt natural. Makes sense. But then after a while, it was, it was like, oh, I didn't do the interview. Sorry, you know, I, you got this letter interviews from... Uh, from fan science at the time. Like, I, I wanted to go with my skateboard and, you know, drink beer with my friends, so I didn't yeah. have time to do it. And then the other guitar player would say, oh, you fucker, you give me those letters, I'm going to do the interviews. And then he took them, and he answered a few, and was like, oh, I, I would prefer to go with the skateboard with my friends, and like... <laughs> skateboarding was a big thing back then. Jeez. <laughs> it was like, in the end, it always ended up in my lap. Okay, you do it. And then we're going to pay for demos, Nobody have any money, so who's going to pay for the yeah, demo? Christopher yeah. pay for the demo. Christopher do the interviews. Christopher make sure that you have gigs. Christopher do everything, and everybody else just come along. And, and that's how it is in most bands. Like you have one guy who makes Great. sure that things happen, or yeah. you have a man, or you have a manager. So when you have these talented people coming on the ship with a captain and perfect crew taking care of everything you know fixing your guitar giving it to you tuned on stage put, putting everything up um you have somebody making merchandise selling it tour managers big tour buses you know with double deckers with all sorts of luxury in it you think everything is so easy 
And then all of a sudden you're going to start your own thing and you just have no clue how to put one and two together. You only know how to play guitar and write songs and that's that's all you know. Um, So I think it's a a great shame that a lot of talents in bands, they ruin their careers and disappear exactly because of that. Yeah, look, I play in covers bands, which is nowhere near the level that you're doing things, mate, but I experience exactly what you've just said on a vastly smaller scale in my scene. So just getting people to turn up and get paid the two or $300, which is a salary effectively, you play three nights a week, mate, That's you don't need to have a job outside of that if you know how to lead your life appropriately. Just to learn songs, turn up, have good gear, maybe buy each other a beer as a sign of camaraderie and friendship. It's very rare, mate. It's very rare. And it, it's when you get an environment when it does happen, especially as I'm a working musician, as a working musician, when it does happen, you just try to hold on to it for dear life and just hope and pray that it happens. But at your level, yeah, I, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to that, yeah, it started out like this was meant to be a band, but then everybody expected X, Y, and Z to be done for them and it ended up being me and even people telling me that they've had to put people on individual contracts so that they turn up on time, just privately, they tell me that. Um, it must be. It says a lot about human nature, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And also, we had different generations of lineups in the beginning, and, and one of the main reasons that they broke up um, was because of, of the hard life we had. Like, we had... Okay, it's not like an American band who... Um, grew up living on the street and, you know, alcoholic parents. I mean, I had a good growing up. I came from a mid-class home in rich Sweden, so uh, I don't have a tough background at all. Um, But in that context, we did things that most bands here never would have done. You know, we made a tour in Sweden. We had seven shows without a shower for the whole tour. We had to sleep on the floor like dogs, not on mattresses on the floor, like on the floor with nothing like that. So we had to get shit-faced drunk so we could sleep. Uh, if we could get a hold of alcohol, sometimes we couldn't even afford to eat. So we had to drink tap water because it was the only thing we had, not to be hungry. Mm. Well, try to ease the hunger by drinking tap water. And once I slept on the floor under a carpet, you know, having something over me. You know, it's like... Mm. Yeah. All, all these things. You've so, done so the hard yards. We had the generation, and of course, we, would, we didn't have a driver, we didn't have a crew, so we would come to a place, and uh, we would set everything up ourselves, do the show, and then break everything down, and then try to sell T-shirts to the fans um, before leaving. And back then, there was no internet, no GPS, so you would just have an... If you had a hotel, instead of sleeping in a car you just had an address in the middle of the night. You just had an address trying to find somebody up on the street telling you where to go in an unknown town. So usually you would drive around most of the night trying to find your hotel and then get like two, three hours sleep there. The cheapest hotel imaginable, you know, the type of hotel you can rent per hour to fuck prostitutes. That's what <laughs> we could have. You know? so What's that banging next door? at all. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, when we played in Holland, there was that type of stuff because That's, they have yeah. legal prostitution there. The Dutch, uh, yeah, no doubt. It's really, really awful. So, and so many of them would think, oh, it's cool. You know, I made an album. We, we played a little bit. And then they would say, well, you know what? I have a good job at the music store now, so I, I can't do these tours anymore. And then I would be the one 
going on with, with different lineups because they chickened out. They thought it was too hard and not believing in the band will get anywhere. Um, so when we finally made it with, with Tilly, we had nine very, very hard years behind ourselves. Um, and that was very good in a way because I never became big-headed when we started to sell a lot. I just remained the same person and yeah, I really understand I sense, yeah. why I got there. And I know what it takes to get there. Um, and this is something that those other guys never really would understand. You know, when I would tell them these old stories, yeah, they would drink beer and they would laugh about it, but they wouldn't really understand it and they would never be prepared to do it themselves because they get out of, most of the musicians I got into the band were previously unknown. So they got from nowhere into a band with a good salary, with full crew, good equipment and all that. Mm. Yeah, so they take it all for granted. And look, I've always understood not always. I certainly, as as an adult, you know, I've got two kids, I'm married, mortgage payments. I understand Gene and Paul's relationship with the other band members in KISS. You know that? Because there's a lot riding on them being able to pay a lot of people that are a part of their camp. Same thing with the guys in Metallica. You know that? And I know those guys tend to cop a lot. Not so much the Metallica guys, but Gene and Paul tend to cop a lot from fans, you know, keyboard warriors, let's call them that, who just want to have a go at them because... I've spoken to Peter Chris before, lovely guy, lovely guy, uh, love his contribution to Kiss's legacy and the like, but Gene and Paul clearly want this thing to be to be on the road, don't they? So they want to have reliable musicians that they can bank on turning up, rain, hail or shine. Um, you know, you've got a, I don't know how long do world tours go for when bands like Kiss, probably as long as yours, mate, probably, you know, 30, 40 dates, that sort of thing. You've got to have people in the pocket, haven't you, that get what needs to take place in order to deliver a performance that paying punters are, are looking forward to seeing. So there's a whole lot that goes into it. If you drill back from the performance that happens, assuming it's in an evening, through to being able to survive with each other on the road, you know, without murdering each other in a tour bus because someone likes to drink too much or, you know, likes to go to the toilet at inappropriate times or not flush at an appropriate time or what have you. Sorry for being vulgar, but you know what I mean? These are all of the things that you've got to think of that the regular person doesn't quite understand that as a working musician, the bloke that's at the helm of a of a very successful band like Therian is that you've had to go through. Yeah, it's okay if you if you play weekend shows and you party, but when you start touring for months, you can't be drunk every day. It doesn't work. Sooner or later, you will fuck up your performance or in worst case, become an alcoholic. And we had two alcoholics in the band, both bass players. Uh, like the Lars Rosenberg who played on Philly, he, he became an alcoholic. Yeah. And uh, Nale, our, our current bass player, he became an alcoholic too. But he, uh, we were left giving him a few months to to clear things up, and he managed to do that, so he could come back to the band. And uh, yeah, he's been sober now for I think five years. So, but it, you know, everybody think, oh, it won't happen to me, you know. But if if you just continue to expose your body to huge amounts of alcohol on a daily basis, sooner or later it will happen. It's, it's not a matter of yeah, it's if, inevitable. it's a matter of when. Yeah. I'm, look, I'm yeah, 39 I mean, and I'm at a point I'm, where I can't drink anymore, and not because I've been an alcoholic. I just know that I can't do it. I've got two kids. I've got people who are depending on me to, to do things, mate, and I've got a condition called ulcerative colitis, and I've just come out of hospital with it. So, mate, even two or three drinks affects me um, in the same way that 10 drinks probably affects somebody else, not because I get drunk, but it affects my body and that it ravages my body and it sends me into a bit of a, um, 
like uh, my health starts to deteriorate and it takes me a long time to wake up even two or three days later, unbelievably. But I think people have just got to know their limits and musicians are notorious for not knowing that, aren't they? Yeah. Everybody wants to be Peter Pan, you know? Like, <laughs> like Kiss. I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. It's good for a lyric, but in reality, I mean, I actually, I don't mind having a drink, but I, I, if I drink, I do it at home, you know? I don't drink on tour. I drink on the last, after the last show, you know, we have a big party. But otherwise, I don't want to have a hangover on tour because people pay me money to play. So I don't even drink, you know, a, a couple of times. I just stay sober. Not good on, on you, tour. mate. Yeah, I can tell that. Because, That's your work ethic coming through. Yeah, I'm very fortunate to have this dream job, you know, where I can just do what I like and get more than decent paid for it. So... It feels very respectless to think like, oh, I need to have this extra privilege. I can be shit faced on the job as well. You know, it's yeah, no, it it's doesn't work. Serious, I think. No, it doesn't work. Doesn't work. Hey, I'll just do a time check, mate. I appreciate we've been talking for over an hour now, but have I got time for one more question? Yep. Okay. So, when you look back, and you might have already answered it here because we've covered a lot of ground, but. When you look back on the Of Darkness album, so that was released, I think it's in 1991, and I'm aware that's not your first release, but it was the first album that was widely available. So 27 years ago now. Mate, you're 16 albums, you're an EP, and a handful of singles deep into a career. Did you have any idea, mate, that when you first started out, you'd be here talking to a bloke from Australia on the 16th of January, at least in my time? It's the 16th of January here, mate. It's probably the morning of the 16th of January for you, mate. But you know what I'm saying. Did you have any idea that well, all these years later, mate, that you'd look back on such a, I'm going to call it a prestigious career because that's what it is? Back then, we were just happy to have a record release. Of Darkness sold 5,000 copies in Europe back then. And given that back in those days, 5,000 was really nothing. So we were a total underground band. We were making fan science interviews. So I maybe did a fan science interview with some Australian fan science, but you know, to even think about playing outside Sweden was a big thing back then. I think in 91, we made one show. No, we, we made a show in 1990 in Finland. So we had been outside Sweden only once playing. Mm -hmm. So to think about that we would one day sell over a million records, um, make like, I don't know what I'm doing for, for this, maybe... 60, 70 interviews. Yeah. Um, it would have been completely unreal. I mean, my, my big goal then was to make a living out of music one day, but it, it felt very, very far ahead. You know, making a living out of death metal music, I think it was only more dangerous than Carcass who could do that <laughs> uh, at the time. Back then, it was really underground, so... I mean, that album was recorded in six days. We were given 500 euros to record it, and we had to spend 500 euros on our own pockets, from my pocket, uh, to, to finance that. So the whole idea of, of making a living out of music the way I do now, and uh, to tour... Sorry, I'm driving at the same time. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> where to go. So, now I'm from the right place. Uh, now, the, the whole idea of 
making a living out of music, being playing in over 50 countries and um, making interviews from all over the world and, and selling a million records. That, that felt like going to the moon at the time. Okay. All right. That was almost my last question, and I'll just get answer this. Get you to answer this one very quickly. We mentioned Australia through the discussion in terms of a potential tour down here. I'm aware that you haven't been down here, mate, but can we expect you down here sometime soon? Well, I wish I had an answer for that, but you know, the, the, we had many offers, but with too many people in the band, and, and when they started to count on the budget, they were like, "Yeah, can you do it maybe with one singer?" But yeah, we doesn't can't work. Do it with one singer. No, we need to have at least three singers to, to make it uh, somehow worthwhile. And also, after all these years, to do uh, some sort of light version of Therion would be just disappointment for the fans. So mm-hmm. we'd rather wait. And, you know, like Japan, we thought we would never make it to Japan, but now we've been there twice playing festivals. So we're still hopeful, you know, that it will happen someday. All right, mate. I'll let you go. It's been a fascinating chat. Thank you so much for your time. You are a legend. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll travel. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and that was my conversation with Christopher Johnson, the brains behind Sweden's best ever musical export, Therion. Thank you so much for listening.